Hello. We're glad that you've decided to join us today, and we hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Today's topic is never pleasant. In fact, I'm pretty sure that today's topic is something I personally wish was not an issue, something we didn't need to talk about. And all of those who love the Lord and His purposes hope and pray for the same thing. Unfortunately, it's a matter that's very often abused, distorted, or neglected or denied because of its difficulty. And that matter is disassociation, or all the terms disfellowshipping. When people start talking about disassociation, the reactions seem to run the gamut. Uh, there are many people, especially those who are less familiar with Christianity, maybe that's you today, maybe the idea of, of, of excommunication, as, as it's called in some groups, or disfellowshipping, uh, seems harsh, seems unloving, seems entirely contrary to the spirit of what Christianity is about. In many churches, because of litigation risk or backlash, a lot of people shrink away from disassociation. But on the other side, some people seem to go the other way and are seeming to look for reasons to disassociate from people, almost like a modern type of inquisition. With such a controversial topic, with such a, a matter that is often distorted, abused, or neglected, it's good to, to try to get rid of all preconceived ideas and go back to the pages of Scripture to see what this is all about, where this all comes from, and to do a, an honest and thorough assessment based on Scripture of what disassociation is, to do so in a way that is measured and faithful, that is a way to glorify God's purposes, what is involved in disassociation, what, why, do you, why does it happen, why is it necessary, Where, when should it be used, and what's the goal? And, and so in order to do this, it's important for us to, again, look at the different scriptures that discuss this subject. And we begin with one uh, with, with Matthew chapter 18, where we see it uh, one of the first times. In Matthew 18, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And he says, beginning in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, oops, that's uh, verse 18, that's beyond our context. So uh, what we see there is if a brother sins against you, and that you're supposed to speak to him yourself, and if he listens, you've gained your brother, well and good. But if he doesn't listen, take two or three witnesses, and then to the church. Interesting that he would speak of the church here, uh, definitely looking forward to the kingdom. And if he doesn't listen, to consider them as a Gentile or a tax collector, which at that time are the people who are separated from God and separated from the people of God. So even Jesus himself has spoken of a time where you need to consider somebody as separated, as that, that you're disassociated from, uh, in as many words. Uh, so, even if not in as many words. So that's, that's an important thing to consider. Likewise, uh, Paul, in Romans 16, beginning in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So he's talking about those who 
cause of visions, create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Uh, these, it could be a physical matter of some sort, it could be uh, some attitude, uh, but throughout the New Testament we see this constant concern about false teaching. And we'll talk about those who don't really serve the Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Uh, immediately, Second uh, Peter 2, Jude 1, 1 um, Timothy 6 come to mind. Passages where that's the hallmark of false teachers. And, and all those that there is the exhortation to uh, remain in the truth, to teach and preach the truth, here in Romans is the one passage that says to avoid them. Uh, to avoid them by necessity requires putting space between you and them. And if you had association where you put space between you and them, that is its own form of disassociation. Because they're, they're no longer serving the Lord Jesus, they're serving their appetites. The, one of the main examples comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we have a situation here that's not even seen among the Gentiles. That a man has taken his stepmother and has an improper relationship with her. And the Corinthians are aware of this and, and, and are glorying in this. They're tolerant of it. They're, they, they seem to think this means this is a positive thing. But Paul says it's not. That in fact this man must be delivered over to Satan for destruction of the flesh so his soul can be saved when the Lord returns. That requires a disassociation. It's a definitely a, a stripping away or moving of. And he gives the reason that a little leaven leavens a whole lump, which means that if you tolerate a little evident flagrant sin, everybody else is going to start flint sinning flagrantly, and that their leaven needs to be removed. Now, when Paul apparently wrote to them earlier, First Corinthians does bear that out. Uh, we don't have any that copy of the letter anymore. But he, when he, he wrote to them earlier, he said that he wanted them not to associate with sexually uh, immoral people, but he didn't mean of the world, because, well, he'd have to leave the world, because there's lots of sexually immoral people in the world. Uh, instead, he was talking about within the church, among the people who would profess to be followers of Jesus, but actually acting in ways contrary uh, to what he has said, specifically sexual deviant behavior, covetousness, idolatry, reviling, uh, drunkenness, extortioner. That they're not even supposed to so share association with a meal, but in fact, uh, yes, God judges those outside, but that there needs to be judgment within inside to purge the evil person from the midst of Christians. 
And another example comes to us from the end of 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with the toil and labor we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but we, to give you an, ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So Paul has this tradition that he's handed down. And the tradition here, this is ironically used to justify all sorts of things that are theoretically apostolic tradition, even though they're really not. But Paul explicitly shows us the tradition here. When he was in Thessalonica, he worked. He worked to eat. He made sure that he, he was not idle, he was not lazy, he was not living off the brethren, even though he could have, uh, because he was working among them, that he labored with his hands so that he could uh, continue to support himself. Now, there's some in Thessalonica who are not doing that, and perhaps living on the benevolence of the members of the church, and they're idle, and they become busybodies, and so he gives specific exhortation to them to work quietly and earn a living, and if they don't, and they don't listen to what Paul says in that letter, they're to avoid them, they're to have nothing to do with them, uh, requires a disconnection, a disassociation, so they'll be ashamed of their behavior and change, we see that very clearly here, and that we're not to treat them as an enemy, but to warn them as a brother. We also have in 2 John 1, beginning in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So here we have uh, the beginning of what we call docetism and Gnosticism. Docetism, the belief that Jesus did not actually become flesh, but only seemed to be human. Uh, and, and Gnostics, which, took, which believed in docetism and would go further, and established the idea that it is through superior knowledge that you are saved uh, from the material creation. And such people were beginning to circulate among Christians, and John saw this as a very deep threat, that even if you were to greet somebody uh, in the name of the Lord, that, that that's participating in their evil works, to act like they are actually part of the people of God, even though they are not, because they are denying the central idea of Jesus, that he was in the flesh, lived in the flesh, died in the flesh, and therefore could be raised from the dead, which is the whole hope of Christianity. And so Christians are to watch themselves have nothing to do with those who deny that. Uh, to disassociate, to have nothing to do with them. And our final example comes from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. 
But uh, Jesus speaking, I have this against you, the Thyatirans, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you say, uh, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. So we have this Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel is probably not her name. It's a reference to the wife of Ahab, who was a wicked idolatress. And she seems to be com- uh, getting Christians to commit idolatry, to sacrifice to idols. That uh, Jesus has tried to get her to repent. She has to refuse. Punishment is going to come. Uh, there's some who have not gone along with Jezebel. And Jesus says that no other burden do he lay on them. Well, no other burden than what? Well, back at the beginning, as we read, that they tolerated Jezebel. How would they go about to stop tolerating Jezebel. Well, if Jesus uh, sees that that she will be uh, put to an end, and that's one way. Uh, but otherwise, they'd have to provide some distance between themselves and her to disassociate. So that's what we see in the New Testament relating to disassociation. So what do we make of all of that? Well, to help understand why we're calling it disassociation or disfellowship, because you notice that word was never used. We first need to understand association or fellowship, what we're talking about, which is from a Greek word koinonia, which is fellowship, joint participation, or community. We see it in Acts 2.42. We see it in 1 Corinthians 10.16.17, 1 John 1.7. And association really is the relationship that we share with God and Christ and with one another. Uh, It's a that's the whole concept of what a, an association or fellowship is. And we really understand it very well from 1 John 1, seven. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, the way that we have association is not just because we like each other. It's not because we look the same. It's not because we have a shared background. The way that Christians walk together is they're having a shared walk in the Lord. They're, they're in Christ. They are the saved. They are the people of God. They, if they were to die at that moment, would share in the resurrection of life. That's the basis upon which we walk together in the faith. But, as we saw in some of the passages we looked at, that the man who had taken his father's wife in Corinth had to have his body delivered to Satan if his soul was going to be saved. And Romans, Paul explicitly said that these people who cause stumbling and obstacles have been separated from Christ. They're not walking according to Christ. Same in Second John, uh, that they're denying their Lord. So in all of these ways, these people are no longer walking with God in Christ because they're doing things that are contrary to the purposes of God and they aren't repentant. They're not changing their behavior. And so what it means is when you're, when you're no longer on that shared path, you can't share association. And so what disassociation is, is making explicit that the, that separation has taken place. How that separation takes place is not explicitly laid out in Scripture. 
but it the the end result is that there is distance placed between the congregation as the people of God and this person or persons who are caught who are in unrepentant sin or who are advancing pernicious doctrines. So it's a local congregational matter. That's uh, to whom uh, Paul is writing in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, and in Thessalonians. Uh, you can see that you take it to the church in Matthew 18. Who would you take it to the church? It would be a local church. And so when we talk about disassociation, this is recognition that this brother or sister has no longer walking in the light, has rejected God and the Lord Jesus through their teaching or actions, and that we don't have that shared relationship. So that's what disassociation is about. What is not dissociation? That was something very important for us to discuss because of all the abuses out there. Disassociation does not mean we stop loving a person, or we stop seeking their best interest, or we act as if they no longer exist. That's why Paul is very careful to point out that you don't treat a fallen away Christian like an enemy, but you warn him as a brother. They still are a Christian. They still have that opportunity to change and come back to the fold of God, and that's, as we'll see, the goal. Likewise, disassociation is not shunning. A lot of people have heard of, of Amish shunning, that if uh, somebody has been uh, so marked by the elders of an Amish church that the family is to have absolutely no contact whatsoever, that the family is to completely disavow uh, the person, and if the family is in any way caught doing anything with, communicating with, sharing with that child, they themselves are open to discipline, uh, and perhaps the same fate as their children. On what basis, did, from anything we just read, did we see that we have the right to treat a lost brother or sister worse than an unbeliever? Maybe 1 Corinthians 5, that you're not to even eat with such a one, although you could eat with somebody who is an unbeliever. Perhaps, but even then, that's, say, that's not saying that you completely break contact, that you completely dissolve the relationship. That is something we do not see about disassociation. Because in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, the idea of you who are spiritual restore somebody who has who has gone astray to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill of Christ in James five nineteen to bring somebody back. Um, all of those things require some connection, some relationship. Likewise, disassociation is not the means by which we get rid of people that we don't agree with or who do not agree with the decisions that are made in order to make the church more uniform. And it's not a way to become a matter of division among Christians. It is because somebody else is being divisive. Division is itself work of the flesh. Uh, if you participate in that, uh, you no longer inherit the kingdom of God. There have been times where the idea of disassociation has been abused, where because somebody disagreed with the leader's decision that the workings were put in place to kick somebody out who has not been in flagrant sin, or the fact that they disagreed happened to be made into a flagrant sin. Uh, now, one could be in disagreement, handle the disagreement in such a way so as to be in need of discipline. That's, so it's not a, a blanket situation, but there are many times when that's not the case, where it's basically uh, politics within a group gone bad. And also, disassociation in Scripture is not the means by which a church, local church, is to keep a tidy roll of members. Because in, in any church that's growing, any church that uh, there's going to be people who, who are going through difficulties or struggles or problems. And 
we are to encourage the weak and strengthen the weak in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We are never told to treat the weak as if they are the errant. And we need to have good discernment between the two. Alright, so all those things are what disassociation is not. So, so what is it? Well, who is supposed to be disassociated from? Those who sin in particular, public and flagrant ways. Those who promote false doctrines to divide the body of Christ and lead people astray. And those who continue and those who continue to do so without repentance when rebuked. And in both of these situations, the concerns are similar. In First Corinthians five, we notice uh, Paul talking about how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In Galatians five nine, when talking about the fruit of the Judaizers, he says the same thing. And what's going on there is the idea of yeast. You get a few little bit of yeast, and it multiplies. And if prominent sin and false teachings are not rebuked and corrected, those who advance them remain in the assembly. Uh, people say, well, look, the church allows this to happen. Maybe they're right. Or maybe that's not a bad thing. And they go out and sin in that way or in other ways. This association is the most drastic and final action. We probably need to emphasize that, don't we? It's the most drastic and final action that is to be done. And it's done for two purposes. It's done to protect the rest of the members from the influence of the sinful or the one who's teaching falsely. And it's also to shake the person out of their current situation uh, to, to get them to realize that they've lost that connection with the people of God and that, that they need to change their ways to get that back. It's something that's never pleasant. It's to be understood as the final straw to be reserved for the most foul situations and unrepentant persons. And this is something that a lot of people have forgotten in, in, in cynicism, perhaps, or in, a, in, in zeal for truth over people. Jesus did not come to condemn people. If our goal is to find ways of, to point out where people are wrong, then we need to look elsewhere. Because if Jesus wanted to point out where we were all wrong... He wouldn't have had to die for our sins. If Jesus was here just to show us all how we're going to go to hell, he would not have had to die for our sins. The fact that he died for our sins shows that he came to seek and save the lost in Luke 19.9. That God wants all to come to acknowledge the truth to be saved in 1 4. And that that's why the patience of God remains this day in 2 Peter 3 and in verse 9. So we must never want to disassociate ourselves from anyone. We must never want that to be the first thing on our minds. It must be the last act after all. Everything else has been done pleading to the person to change their way. It's important to note, Paul lists specific sins. Those who are guilty of sexual morality or greed, an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Those who are idle and ref refuse to work in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3. Uh, a lot of times people will look at this and then all of a sudden they'll forget that Paul gave specific sins and then just any sin becomes now a justification for disassociation. But let's think about that for a second, because in the same Corinthian letter, he's had to urge the Corinthians to stop being divided by loyalty to particular preachers, to stop taking each other to court, to stop honoring idols, to stop using spiritual gifts in unprofitable ways, and to stop denying the resurrection, the centerpiece of the Christian faith, in, in, in most of the rest of the book. In none of those circumstances did he say immediately to disassociate from those who were causing division, those who were sacrificing to idols, those who were denying their resurrection. 
and throughout the whole Bible. How many times does Paul exhort Christians to greater faithfulness without demanding disassociation from their, for their sinful behavior explicitly? Why would Paul give a specific list of sins if he intended for Christians to understand that disassociation should take place if and when any Christian continually committed any sin without repentance? In terms of false teachings, many other passages we see warn about false teachings, even false teachers. But the need to avoid, but only in Romans 16 and Revelation 2 do we see any sort of demand to delineate and avoid the people involved. Uh, in, in Galatians 1, Paul says those who uh, go, you know, who teach a different gospel are anathema, are cursed, are going to hell. In chapter 5, he goes so far as to say in verse 7-12 through 12, that he hopes that those who are teaching uh, these Judaizing things would emasculate themselves, to literally chop their balls off. He warns the Galatians insistently about their influence, but no word about disassociation. Philippians 3, 1 Timothy 1 and 6, 2 Timothy 2, 3, 4, Titus 1, 2 Peter 1, and in Jude, 2 Peter 2, sorry, in Jude, all have strong warnings against false teaching, false teachers. They speak in graphic detail about the, their divergence from the faith and their condemnation. Yet in none of those passages is disassociation mentioned. Now, somebody could think, wait a second, that's because he's already mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 and they all knew that they should disassociate from people like that. Such a perspective is that disassociation was self-evident. Which, while it may be, we need to first be honest and say, it's not explicitly written in those passages. And we need to chew on that before we assume automatically that it would apply in all those circumstances. Now, we, another situation is, like in Galatia and in Philippi, um, maybe even in Second Peter and Jude, that the people who were bringing these false teachings weren't necessarily members of that local church. We know that in Galatians for certain, and in Philippians as well. And so you can't disassociate from people that you haven't associated with yet, and so all Paul can do is warn. Uh, or maybe, like in 1 John 2, 18 and 19, they'd already left the group. Uh, they were already um, outside of it, uh, but trying to influence people privately. And that, therefore, all could be done is to warn about their teachings and exhort about their teachings. And that's true. But we're still left with Paul with Timothy and Titus. And in both of those circumstances, he's talking about what to do with people who are inside the churches. Likewise, we have Romans 14, in verses 1 through 23, where on certain issues, this issue of eating food, uh, eating meat, um, in Romans 14, 3, we get the impression that the ones who thought it was wrong to do so were condemning those who thought they had the right to. Uh, Paul didn't say, well, split from on each other, or disassociate from those who are binding or loosing. He says, no, that they're not to cause each other to stumble. And the reason we point all this out is not necessarily to water down disassociation, but to show that disassociation is not automatic, and that disassociation is not the answer to everything. Because God has a goal in Christ for everyone to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth, and to work together in His purposes. In John 17, 1 Timothy 2, and verse 4. There are some matters of disagreement that do not compromise the gospel truth, should not lead to division in the body. And if they lead to division in the body, that's the real sin. That's what could separate you from the love of Christ. Because you're promoting the very thing that Jesus came to heal. Likewise, like in 1 Corinthians 8, verses uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, that weakness should not be confused with being errant. Now, there are times where there are people who just have been told and keep doing things wrongly. But then Paul will talk about the, the, the 
new convert in First Corinthians 8 who, who still hasn't totally figured out this whole idols really aren't real thing. And the influence a stronger brother may have, thinking that he's using a liberty, uh, but causing somebody else to think uh, differently. Uh, thinking that he's honoring the idol when he really isn't. And he doesn't say, kick them out. There's this warning, this exhortation. When someone is in sin, and again, when we say all this, this is not to say that the Galatian fault Judaizers are not in sin, or if people went after them, there's going to be no problem. We're not trying to say that all these false teachers are, are fine and dandy. There are strong warnings about all of that. But just to point out that even in First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, when Paul is talking to these men about internal church conditions and the people who are going after Jewish fables and myths and all this other stuff, the first thing to do is to rebuke what they're doing. To, to show them the truth of God in Christ. The first thing to do is to try to get them to confess and repent, to change their heart and mind, to get the forgiveness from God in 1 John 1, nine. So that's why Paul first tells Timothy and Titus to exhort, warn, and rebuke those in error. Now, what if after that they still persist in these things and they start causing division in the church? Then, there's absolutely no difficulty surmising, and it's just surmising because it's a happenstance, we don't know, uh, that Paul, for certain, that Paul would say, as he did in Romans 16 or 1 Corinthians 5, you need to avoid these people. These people need to be marked off. Um, the same with, um, uh, but on the other hand, maybe they do listen. Maybe they repent and change their ways. Well, to kick them out would have caused somebody who was saved, was could have continued to be saved, to now be lost because of the hasty action. And so there's, and again, it depends on your perspective here. A lot of people have been burned by this. A lot of people's perspective on disassociation or disfellowship is very tainted and tarnished by what they've seen. For some people, they've seen way too much looseness on it where discipline was never done and they get a little zealous for it. And anything they hear that would, in their mind, seem to reduce the times, opportunity, situations must be heretical. Then there are people who, on the other side who have seen too much discipline be done, too much zealous zeal for discipline, and now want nothing to do with it, are suspicious at any conversation about discipline. All of that is colored by experience. And the truth of God is right between the two. And we need to be careful. So when should disassociation take place? If a Christian is accused of participating in the sins of 1 Corinthians 5 or 2 Thessalonians 3, or a report is made of them that they are advocating false teachings to divide the body and lead people astray from the faith, a process should begin to exhort them to return to the right faith and conduct to rebuke them, to warn them, to, to speak with them. How do you do that? The scriptures never explicitly say we have liberty. Matthew 18, 15-17 provides a great paradigm. Some people say, well, that if somebody sinned publicly, that you can skip over some of that. Well, that might be true, but first of all, any report needs to be confirmed. Because it's very possible, and it's happened before, that it's all a big misunderstanding. Or, for God forbid, that it's a conspiracy against a Christian. That he's being slandered. And maybe the one who is accusing is the one who needs to be uh, more critically examined in this light. Remember, the goal is repentance and a change of behavior. And people will respond best when spoken to in love and privately about the matter. 
That's why Galatians 6.1 encourages one who is spiritual to, to, to support, restore someone to the spirit of gentleness, looking to themselves as they to be tempted. Uh, this, any kind of it, whenever you start talking about sin or people's problems, everybody gets more sensitive. You're more sensitive to it. I know I'm more sensitive to it. And so when somebody comes in humility, admits that they have their own challenge difficulties, uh, is trying to point something out in love, concerned, uh, and has built their relationship where that does not feel like an intrusion or judgment, it goes a long way. Now, if, if they're not going to listen to that person, then a couple witnesses should go forth. And if they're not going to listen to them, then the matter needs to come before the whole congregation. And if they do not repent, then the congregation must, in sorrow, consider the person as disfellowship to make it clear the consequences of their behavior. And it has to be a congregational action. If it's something that only a few people in congregation do, it's going to have no effectiveness. It's going to be undermined. It's got to be something that the congregation agrees upon. Because if somebody's been disfellowshipped from, or disassociated from, and most of the congregation still is acting like nothing's different with them, then, then the whole process has just been undermined. But what does it look like? And again, what we're looking at here, are, 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 we don't have much in the way of explicit scripture. That's not trying to say we shouldn't do it. Don't take it that way at all. But since there's no explicit scripture, that's why we see everything from Amish shunning to the Inquisition where you were burned at the stake to the, the way that happens in, in many churches of Christ where a letter is sent and people unfriend on Facebook and have nothing else to do with them. All of these things are just ways people have attempted to make sense of what has been commanded and how to engage it in real life. We need to keep in mind the goal of disassociation. It's sounding like a broken record here, but it's very important. It's to be restorative, not punitive. The goal is not to give the guy a good whipping, or to, but to for the person to have a change of heart and mind and come back to the Lord. The goal is to have them come back and to feel part of us again. So Christians need to show love and consideration to the disfellowship brother or sister, but to make it clear that everything is not okay as long as they remain apart from Christ. For those in the sins of 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says that Christians shouldn't even eat with such people. And those who are teaching false doctrines, that the Christians are avoid their teachings and to warn other people about those teachings. And as we have opportunity, we must seek to encourage them to return to the Lord as the Gentiles and tax collectors need to do as well. Because again, we can see that the goal is repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in the next letter Paul sends to the Corinthians, we have the story beginning in verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather return to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I forgive also. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we may, would not be outwitted by Satan, for you are not ignorant of his designs. So, it seems to provide here the conclusion to what we saw in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, 
that some people dispute that connection, but it seems pretty strong here. That, in fact, the Corinthians, which we would imagine the Corinthians are wont to do, have gone from being overly tolerant to overly harsh and judgmental. They disassociated from the sinful brother who repented in tears. Now he's holding the Corinthians back, saying, well, receive him back now. The punishment was sufficient. Uh, he was separated. He got the message. He's back. He's changed his ways. Let's not keep piling it on here. And, again... Even though there was a punishment involved, the ultimate goal is restoration. He, he cannot, that person cannot continue in his teachings or continue in their sin and enjoy association with God's people, and therefore they repent. That's why it's there for them. It's to protect the congregation. It's to help him or her recognize what, what he or she has done and the consequences of it. And notice that Paul does not demand penance or probation. They are fully welcomed back as part of God's people. Because in the end, we've all sinned. None of us are deserving of God's grace. We haven't merited it. If disassociation were just about the fact that we've sinned, that all of us would be disassociated from, we need to be very careful. Again, make it very clear, disassociation is unpleasant. It is distressing. But it has its place for the health of the local congregation and its members. Because if a Christian persists in flagrant sin or false teaching and they cause stumbling blocks and division, it must be done. But we have to do it with the right attitude, in humility and in love, knowing that we're all sinners, but God wants to save us. And he doesn't want to condemn us in Jesus Christ. That we have no right to glory in the idea that we can keep a shared walk with those who are disobedient like the Corinthians did. But we also have no right to declare one for whom Christ died in association and who remains associated with him no longer part of us. Which can also happen. So there's a two sides of that. Sure, you don't want to tolerate something God doesn't want you to tolerate. But what is to be done to those who have chopped off a part of the body of Christ that was still living and functional? So let us give consideration to our walk in Christ. To seek to live and teach more the gospel. To encourage your participation in the faith. And be willing, if and when necessary, to make the hard decision to disassociate and cut off the parts of the body that have died and withered away or to formally recognize that they have already fallen off and died, so that no other parts may fall off and die, and that part may have its resurrection to be connected back to the people of God, to share in the resurrection of life. Again, thank you for being with us. Now, this is a really difficult subject, a very unpleasant subject. Um, if you have any questions about it, like talk more about what the Bible teaches about disassociation and disfellowship, Maybe uh, you'd like to learn how to be in a fellowship with God so that you don't experience that. Um, maybe you need to repent. Maybe you, you need to talk to somebody. Maybe you're going through difficult times, maybe a prayer request. Any way that I can be of assistance, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Uh, maybe you'd like to learn more about the Venice Church of Christ in Los Angeles. Uh, we'd love to uh, get to meet you if you have a chance or be a source of encouragement to you. Um, you can find out more about us uh, online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Google+, Meetup, and Twitter, YouTube. Mostly at Venice Church of Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.